the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
cold, hard truth about Jesus is that he is coming whether you are ready or not. When I was a kid on the farm, we always loved to play hide-and-go-seek. Now, playing hide-and-go-seek, there were plenty of places to hide. There was home base, and then from home base, the one who was it would hide his face. He would hide his face, and he was to count to 100, sometimes to 50. And when he was ready, he would shout, ready or not, here I come. And then turn around, open his eyes, and if someone were standing there, not yet fully hidden, he would tag home base and say, one, two, three, out, and name the person. When Jesus comes, if you're not hidden in him, you will be called out. And there will be no opportunity to go hide again. Right now, the flowing mercy of Jesus is available for every one of us. His mercy, his kindness, his love is available to any one of us. But if we do not avail ourselves of this time and hide ourselves in Jesus when he comes, you will be called out. There will be no favoritism. There will be no second chance. It's given unto every man to live one time and then face the judgment. A judgment is coming. So we need to talk today about what it means to hide yourself in Jesus. There is a great deal of false doctrine, of false teachings that sound very pleasant and very nice, but do not hide you. I want to share with you again a typically very short sermon by William J. Seymour, who was the pastor of the Azusa Street Revival. Now, he's very concentrated in this. I'm going to break down some of the things he says so that you will have a better understanding. This sermon was preached in January 1907. Now, what I want you to know is that the teaching of much of the church in America was dramatically different than the teaching we find today. In that day, you had the Presbyterians preaching Calvinism, and that was a false doctrine. But you had the whole holiness movement coming out of John Wesley, 
that had a very different message. And this message resonated with the working people of America on their farms, in their communities, the soap makers, the seamstress, the washerwoman, the farmer. This message resonated in their hearts, and they grabbed a hold of it. It's going to take some understanding on your part. I'm going to try to help you with that. As we begin, I'd like to pray. Lord Jesus, I know every person listening to this broadcast needs to be hidden in you, Jesus. For you alone are our salvation. And if we are out of you when you come, we are lost. And we will spend eternity in the fires of hell. But you, in your great mercy, have opened a door of opportunity for us to enter into your grace and your mercy and your love and your kindness, your long-suffering, your patience. Lord, thank you. I pray now that every person listening can grab a hold of these truths, that you will not allow men and women to be confused by this message today. Lord, thank you. I pray in your holy name. Amen. His sermon opens with these words. The first step in seeking the baptism with the Holy Ghost is to have a clear knowledge of the new birth in our souls, which is the first work of grace and brings everlasting life to our souls. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Every one of us that repents of our sins and turns to the Lord Jesus with faith in him receives forgiveness of sins. Justification and regeneration are simultaneous. The pardoned sinner becomes a child of God in justification. Now let's break this down a little. He's using two words, justification and regeneration. Justification in Old English means to be made righteous, to be made holy. The word in the Greek that is used for justification is dikasune, and in the New Covenant, dikasune means to be made righteous. Regeneration means if I have had my arm cut off, and now that arm is to be regenerated, it means a new arm will grow. I will be restored as I was before the attack occurred and my arm was lost. So, the teaching of the greatest revival that has happened in modern days is that if you will repent of your sin 
if you will turn to God, if you will turn to Jesus Christ in faith, and if you will confess your sins, if you will repent and receive his forgiveness, he will remove those sins from your life. And he will both make you righteous and regenerate you simultaneously at the same time. Now, that is not in accord with the modern teaching of Charles Stanley and many other wonderful Bible teachers. It is totally out of step with the modern church. The modern church teaches that you are justified legally, but not regenerated, not changed, not made into a new creature. You continue and will always continue as long as you live on this earth to walk in sin and disobedience to Jesus. That was the totally opposite belief of the old timers in early America. It was in total opposition to what John Wesley taught. Might I add, it was also totally in opposition to what the early Calvinists believed. John Calvin did not believe that you could separate justification and sanctification. He believed that they must be held together it was his later followers who came up with a new theory. Justification in the modern church is seen as the forgiveness of sins in a legal act by the blood of Jesus. The old timers believed that justification was to be made righteous and all sin, all known sin, was cut off at that point. And if you continued to walk in your sin, you were not justified, you were not saved. For the old timers, to be saved meant to be saved from your sin. It was a false gospel. And if you believe the modern church gospel, when Jesus comes, you will be caught out of hiding because you will not be hidden in Jesus. You will be hidden in a false teaching, a false doctrine. Now the next step he goes to is to have a clear knowledge by the Holy Spirit of the second work of grace wrought in our hearts by the power of the blood of by the Holy Spirit. He quotes Hebrews 10, 14 and 15. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. The scripture also teaches, for both he that sanctify and they who are sanctified are all of one for which case he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Hebrews 2, verse 11. So we have Christ crowned and enthroned in our heart, the tree of life. We have the brooks and the streams of salvation 
flowing in our souls. But praise God, we can have rivers flowing in our soul. For the Lord Jesus said, He that believeth on me, as the scriptures hath said, out of his inmost being shall flow rivers of living water. This spake he of the Spirit, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given. But praise our God, he is now given. And being poured out upon all flesh, all races, nations, and tongues are receiving the baptism with the Holy Ghost and fire, according to the prophecy of Joel. Now, I'm not going to go on to the third step he gives until we go back and look at a couple of things that I don't really want to talk about. I was awakened in the night, and this was all I could look at. It filled my mind. It filled me with dread. I had a, a dream. I'll share it with you. I was sitting in a classroom. I was the only one in the classroom taking this particular class. Others were taking other classes. And before me was the textbook. And it said on the outside of the textbook, Kerygma. I flipped through it. It seemed much too much for me to handle because I was having, in my dream, car troubles. I was having other people's demands on my life. I felt burdened down in my dream by many responsibilities. Now, I knew what the word kerygma meant. But as soon as I awakened, I immediately went to the studio and read material on the word kerygma. It means in the Greek, to proclaim, to preach. Specifically, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus as it's used in the New Testament. And I immediately fell under very deep conviction. For I recognize that I have allowed interference in my life with my duty of kerygma. And I also recognize that I have been spectacularly unsuccessful in the preaching of the kerygma. And I began to cry out to the Lord. Now, in the midst of that crying out to the Lord, a friend called me and said, Pastor, would you please pray with me? I need strength. And as soon as I began to pray for this precious soul, the Holy Spirit was poured out in power, in anointing. And I was able to pray with power for her. 
when I hung up, there was no detailed conversation. It was just prayer. She said, please, Pastor, pray for me for strength. So I began praying. And my heart was greatly encouraged because I know on one side I've been utterly faithful in the kerygma day by day. And that brings me to a, a story that has struck my heart, both for me and for you. It's found in chapter 5 of the book of Acts. I'm going to read you the entire account, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to speak specifically to this in regard to both you and me. Acts 5, beginning in verse 1. But a certain man, Ananias by name, with his wife Sapphira, sold a property. And he set apart from the price some for himself, his wife also having been aware of it and having laid it at the feet of the apostles. And Peter said to Ananias, Why did Satan fill your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to put aside for yourself from the price of the land? While remaining, was it not still yours? And after having been sold, was it not in your authority? Why did you conceive this deed in your heart? You did not lie to men but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, having fallen down, breathed his last. And great fear came upon those hearing these things. And having risen, the younger men wrapped him up, and having carried him out, they buried him. Now there was an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing the things having happened. Now Peter replied to her, Tell me, if for so much you sold the place. And she said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, Why was it that you agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Pay attention. The feet of the ones having buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And she fell down immediately at his feet and breathed her last. And then the young men, having entered, found her dead. And having carried her out, they buried her by her husband. And so great fear came upon the whole church upon all the ones having heard these things. Now, this is what terrifies me about this story. To tell the Holy Spirit, to tell Jesus one thing, and then to do something else. To hold back a certain portion for yourself. Let me be more specific. Lord Jesus, I give myself to you. 
Possess me, Jesus, fully, completely. I totally belong to you. Rule over my life. I trust you, Jesus. And so forth, we pray. But is that true? Have we really given ourselves totally into the hands of Jesus? Or have we held back a part for ourselves? I fear that if Jesus were to come to the American church today in response to the cry for revival, that half the church would die that half the church would die because, and I'm being very generous, I actually believe much more than half would die, because we have, as Christians in America, made a promise to Jesus that he is our Lord and our Savior, but we have held back our sin and believe that we could not allow the blood of Jesus to remove it from us. listen to preachers of many denominations. I remember in one church, I came in and I asked one of the men working in the church, is your pastor here? Oh, yes. Well, could I see him? Well, no, he's not available right now. Knowing this man, I said, come on, I need, to see, I need to see your pastor. Where can I find him? Is he hiding out somewhere? And he got a funny grin on his face, and he said, yes. I said, where is he? He's up on the third floor. He's out on the balcony. I said, okay, thank you. And I went to the elevator, punched in the third floor, went to the balcony, and there I found the pastor and his associate standing on the balcony, smoking their cigars, joking and laughing. I was deeply grieved. I said what I needed to, and I went back downstairs, and I passed this man who was working in the house of the Lord and I noticed that he had a big bulge in the side of his cheek. I said to him, Brother, are you chewing tobacco? He said, Yes. I've tried to quit, but I can't. I said, Don't you know that that chewing tobacco will give you cancer in your tongue, and it's against your body, it's against the Holy Spirit? It's sin. He smiled and he said, Pastor, my pastor is upstairs smoking his cigar. What's the difference between smoking my cigar or his smoking his cigar and my chewing my tobacco? I said, you're right. Both of you are sinning against God and he is very displeased. And I'm sorry to see you working in the house of the Lord chewing tobacco. It's a filthy habit, as is smoking. And the Lord stands against you. 
I pray you will repent. He said, I'll try. And I left. They both have said they will serve Jesus Christ with all of their hearts, but they both have said we reserve the smoking and the chewing for ourselves. We will not give that to Jesus. Another pastor I met as I was coming out of the bank. It was Friday afternoon. He said, hello, Ray. I'm headed to the movie. I want to watch one of those action flicks this afternoon. I'd usually do that, he said, every Friday afternoon. I said, yes, I used to do that. He said, well, come and join me. I said, I can't. Well, why not? What do you have to do? I said, I have to go and prepare for for Sunday. I have to have time in prayer and scripture. And if I go watch that movie with you, my, my heart will be so seared, I will not be able to pray, maybe even until next week. And then what do I do on Sunday? He said, oh, Ray, no, no, no. Our sins are all forgiven. We stand in Jesus Christ. We belong to him. He doesn't care if we go to the action flicks. I said, brother, you are sinning against Jesus. The word was not well received. And frankly, I've never seen the man again. Do you hear what I'm saying? Hold back certain behavior that the Holy Spirit has spoken to you about. And you know it's wrong. You know it's not what he's called you to do or to be or to think. But you have held it back for yourself. Many times as I speak with Christians, I say to them, how are you with Jesus? I said that just yesterday to a man. I said, how are you with Jesus? He said, I'm struggling. He said, there are some issues that I haven't resolved yet. And then he began to talk about the issues that are not yet resolved. His mother died and she was a very wealthy woman with many properties. And the family is now squabbling over all of those properties. And he wants his share. I said, oh, my brother, put this in Jesus' hands. And don't fight with your brothers and your sisters. Even if you are cheated out of everything, don't fight with your brothers and sisters. He said, I'll pray about it. He is holding back from the Lord his rightful money. And he is determined he will have it. Even if it means the breaking of family relationships. When I read to you about the early church, and I read to you about Azusa Street 
the first step in seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to be very clear that you have been born again, that you've been converted. If you're holding back on Jesus, you are in the same place as Ananias and Sapphira, and only because God is today much more distant from the church have you been allowed to live. If Jesus came in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, you would either have to be down on your face weeping and repenting, or you would be dead. You would not survive it. If you still think you can walk in sin, you are a brother to Ananias and Sapphira. They thought they could walk and hold back from God that portion of money that they had committed. Have you not committed your life to Jesus Christ? Have you not said you will obey him? Have you not given him everything in your heart? <clears throat> Until you hold it back and you don't want to give it. And when you hold it back and you don't want to give it, you're an Ananias, you're a Sapphira, and you're in danger. Now, the next step is to have a clear knowledge by the Holy Spirit of the second work of grace wrought in our hearts by the power of the blood of the Holy Ghost. I was with a man speaking to another man, and they were saying one to another, we don't believe in this foolishness of the second work of grace. I knew enough about both of their lives to know that they were not fully born again. They were just on the edge, calling themselves Christians, but still walking in known rebellion and sin. So, of course, they would not be willing to even look at the second work of grace. The second work of grace is spoken of in Scripture. Let me turn to it for you. In Romans, the sixth chapter, let me read verse 6 for you. Romans 6, verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him so that the body of sin, that is, the old nature, the old man, may be destroyed, that we not hereafter serve sin. Now, the NIV softens it down, but in fact, the word in the Greek is destroyed. Now, it's interesting to me that in the Greek, there are a number of words that could be used other than to destroy. But in the New Testament, the sin nature is only dealt with in terms of total destruction, crucified, 
stripping off Colossians 2.11. Put off Colossians 3.9. The scripture never uses any term that implies or states suppression of the old man. And yet the modern church teaches that you must work hard to suppress the old man, but you're never going to be successful. He's always going to rise up and you're always going to give in. That's a lie. It's false doctrine. The scripture never uses a word for holding down, even though that word is in the Greek, for holding, to withstand, to bind. None of these terms or any other is used in the New Testament for dealing with sin. The only word used for sin in the New Testament is that it must be destroyed. The old man must be destroyed. He must be at a total end. And so the second work of grace is not simultaneous with the new birth, although it could be. But usually it is not. John Wesley said that in his experience he had not seen it. I, I agree in my experience. It comes at a crisis point where finally we come to terms with that old man nature in us, not giving into it, not walking in sin, but fighting with it, bloody battles with it. Jesus was very clear that none of us have been tempted beyond what we can bear and that with every temptation, there is an avenue of escape. So literally, in the New Testament, amputation is the way we deal with sin. Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. In other words, Jesus' only method for dealing with sin was not psychotherapy. It was not counseling. He said, cut it off. It was amputation. And then when we come to the writings of, of Paul and of the Apostle John, Likewise, they only know one way to deal with sin, and that is to cut it off, to remove it. If you look at John, the 15th chapter, Jesus says that the Father is the gardener, that he himself is the vine, and we are the branches. And if a branch becomes blighted, there is only one answer. The father prunes. He cuts it off. He removes it from the vine. You cannot remove blight by spraying it. You can only remove vite, blight from a, from a vine of grapes by cutting it off. Like what he says, the branch that does not bear fruit, 
will be cut off, thrown into a pile where it will wither and die, and then it will be thrown in the fire. This is the hard, cold truth about Jesus. Yes, he's kind, he's merciful, he's long-suffering, he's filled with love and compassion. But there comes a time when judgment comes. And I believe that America is facing a very, very severe judgment in the near future. We may have our electric grid go out, and we may be weeks without electricity. What would you do? You would not be able to get water because water requires electricity for the pump. You would not be able to turn on the lights or turn on the air conditioning. That requires electricity. If our grid goes out and it were out for a year, they say 90% of the population would be dead by the end of the year. This is a very frightening, terrifying possibility. An EMP attack by North Korea would take out our grid. China could take out our grid, our electric grid. Can you imagine living through the summer, not being able to drive your car because you could not get any gasoline because there's no electricity for the gas pump? Can you imagine what you would do for food when food could not be delivered because there was no gasoline. I mean, we're facing also the very strong possibility of a total meltdown of our economy, of the destruction of our dollar. What would you do? Have you put aside food and water? Are you ready if such a thing were to happen? Now, please, I don't say these things to frighten you. But if you're not hidden in Jesus Christ, you will not survive. And many of you will not cry out to the Lord to remove the old nature from your heart because you've been taught that you will have that old nature until you die. And so in reality, you look to death as your Savior, not to Jesus. But you won't even begin to talk about the second work of grace because you've not yet experienced the first work of grace of God in the removal of sins from your life. And you've been taught that you cannot remove sin from your life, that you're always going to be a sinner. Our entire population in America would quickly say, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. I still make mistakes. Yes, we all make mistakes. Sin is not a mistake. Sin is a voluntary giving of ourselves to rebellion against Jesus Christ. So I come back to the question. Have you withheld your private sins 
from Jesus. Have you withheld your private sexual sins from Jesus? Are you living with somebody you're not married to? Are you committing fornication? Are you living with somebody else's husband or wife? Are you an adulterer? Have you made vows to God that you have not fulfilled? That you, like Ananias and Sapphira, have held back and have not done what you promised Jesus you would do? You have not given yourself fully to him, believing that you cannot give yourself fully to him. That's a lie. It's a comfortable lie because it means you can continue to walk in the lust of your heart and still consider yourself to be saved, but you're not. And when Jesus comes, the cold, hard truth is he will catch you out in the open, walking in your sin and your rebellion, and you will be out. You will not go to the heavenly realm with Jesus. And Jesus could come at any moment. There is nothing, there is no prophecy, there is nothing that must happen. Jesus could come today to take you home. He could come in the cloud of glory today. Are you ready? The cold, hard truth about Jesus is he has no favorites. He has offered you the opening window of heaven with the precious blood to wash you clean, to make you whole, to heal your body, to heal your mind, to heal your marriage, to heal your family. All the healing, all the restoration, it's all found in Jesus Christ. Now, how do we even begin to talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit when the baptism of the Holy Spirit is only for those who have been fully converted and who have left the sin and who walk clean before God and who now have had the old man of sin removed from their hearts. And I'm sure you know people who say they have been baptized in the Holy Spirit, but they still walk in unbelief and sin and rebellion against God. No, it's a false spirit they've received. The laughing revival that some spoke so highly of. I went to Canada to see for myself many years ago, and I found it utterly disgusting as men and women rolled in laughter, not tears of repentance. I saw no tears of repentance. I saw people on the floor barking like dogs. I saw a kundalini spirit, a false spirit of deception on the people of God. They had no discernment. A young youth pastor who was a part of that church came to me. I'd never talked to him before. And he said to me, Pastor, you should leave. There is nothing here for you. And by the way, 
I'm leaving this afternoon and I will have nothing more to do with this so-called revival. The Holy Spirit has said to me to tell you, take your wife and go to Niagara Falls and enjoy the weekend, but don't come to this. It's not a revival. It's sin. I followed his advice and my wife and I had a wonderful weekend at Niagara Falls. How do I talk to you about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Yesterday's broadcast was about the baptism, and it had the smallest number of people listen to it of almost any broadcast I've done recently. Why? Because people have not even taken the first step, let alone the second, and they're not ready for the third. We pray for revival, but we have not met even the beginning conditions for revival. aching for the church in America for you but Lord I have preached the charisma today of your word and I pray almighty king that every person listening who is playing Ananias and Sapphira's game will be deeply convicted and give up everything that is unclean and everything that you have touched and said, let it go. That they will not hold back, Lord Jesus. That you will have your way. Mighty God, Please come with mercy and compassion and convict your people of their sin. Let a spirit of prayer come upon the church, a spirit of confession of sin, a a spirit of utterly giving over to you everything in our hearts. Lord, thank you. I pray in your holy name. This is a faith broadcast. Thank each one of you who contributes to help keep this broadcast on the air without your help. As brought forward by the Holy Spirit, I would not be on the air. I pray that as you get right with Jesus, your pocketbook will be converted also. And that you will give generously. This broadcast needs to go out over this city. It's a, it's a lone call. You can write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. Again, it's the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can also go to our webpage. I check it every day. Click on the upper right-hand corner, and you can give online. And a big thank you to those of you who also cover the cost of giving online. But I appreciate all of you 
I treasure you. Gloria, you give me such courage. Leslie, Bob, Tom, I could name many, many more. Jose, Gino, Bertha. Lord, thank you for these brothers and sisters who walk with me. I love you all. I wish I could meet each one of you. I'd love to sit down and talk with you about Jesus. Maybe someday soon we can do that. God bless you, my brother, my sister. Let Jesus deal with your heart today. Don't be an Ananias and Sapphira. Don't test the Lord. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. Hello, I'm Alistair Bay.